Nice to hear such a, uh, an excited hubbub uh, that awaits our uh, speaker this evening. I'm delighted to welcome Claire Enders, um, who is uh, one of the most uh, preeminent, successful media consultants, certainly in this city, um, and uh, I would add probably around the world. She set up her company, Enders Analysis, in 1997, uh, um, which provides a variety of services to, I think, uh, more than 100 uh, leading media clients, um, including the biggest media companies uh, uh, operating in London, providing them with research uh, and analysis, and she's going to show you some of that research and analysis today. Um, I personally have come uh, into contact with her work in the context of the policy debate surrounding um, B Sky B and News International and the Leveson Inquiry. She's going to speak a little bit about that today. I should mention also that she has, um, in addition to uh, setting up Ender's analysis and involvement in many charities um, around the uh, country, including the, Nat the Natural History Museum, and in a very um, uh, interesting uh, and topical way, um, the NSPCC, which is a charity uh, that supports the protection of children in the UK, um, and I think, as she's going to just briefly mention, uh, which has been involved in the current unfolding scandal connected to the BBC. So, um, welcome, Claire. Thank you very much. I know you've been very busy saving the BBC for the last uh, few days, so I'm doubly um, happy to have you with us. Uh, thank you so much. I'm going to get slightly out of the limelight. Um, well, thank you, Damien. And, uh, well, since there are loads of, of women here, um, I hope I'm going to give you an empowering speech. Um, I'm actually not a consultant. Um, thank you, Damien, for really getting it right. Uh, my business actually produces research, and we have patrons. So uh, about 180 organizations uh, support our work. Uh, they don't know what we're going to write about and, or why, but we do. And then what we also do is, is, is also provide expertise and advice, very, very good advice. And I would put our role is, is slightly broader. I, I have evolved uh, into, into an activist uh, over, over a long period of time uh, because I know a great deal. And the one thing that you can interest politicians in is your expertise when they don't have any. Um, and also that's also true for the press. So the way that my business has actually evolved and the way that it addresses issues in the UK is actually like no other. I mean, you know, first of all, I own my business, uh, and also we train people from a relatively early age. We have, in fact, here a graduate of LSE's uh, PhD program who uh, uh, was actually started reading our work because we provided free to the LSE and many other institutions as well. Uh, I, I think uh, some, some years ago. So she knew exactly what we do and why. And what we do it for 
is so that companies will allocate investments more correctly. So that is to say, we tend to be very, very sharp at debunking bubbles. We tend to steer institutions away from bubble phenomena. We are also there to push governments in the right direction on legislation, to push them in the right direction on actions, and above all, to inform them. You know, many, many people live in our industries or, or have roles in our industries without actually knowing a whole lot about them. And, and there is a tendency, particularly in the political arena, to sort of jump to conclusions and fail to understand how the whole ecosystem works. And our, the advantage we have in my company is because we model every part of, of the media, telecoms, and technology landscape covering, you know, from internet phenomena in the UK and globally to, to TV trends, to any kind of key theme, to disruptive technologies and also disruptive devices and, and disruptive ideas, you know, we're actually in a position to guide the system as a whole. And, and I'm sure you know that every media ecosystem is actually full of conflict. You know, you ha it's not like there's a zero-sum game going on, but there is a limit, a finite limit. And in the UK, the U UK consumer already pays more for television than any other consumer on the planet Earth. And this is a combination of the impact of pay TV, which is very, very powerful in this country. This country is the most penetrated market in Europe for pay TV, uh, combined with a license fee, which is among you know, the, the median level in Europe, but quite, quite a significant payment, uh, plus obviously advertising and all manner of things. So actually the British ecosystem is, is a wonder. Um, you know, the UK uh, bangs way ab above its weight, you know, fights way above its weight in the world economy in terms of exports of programs, in terms of the relevance of its ideas and its themes. And, and, and the UK also has a core locus in, in, in preserving uh, the print culture. So we, we have very high per capita consumption of newspapers, certainly compared to Europe as a whole. We have less state subsidy. I'm not saying no state subsidy. We have less state subsidy of the print media than, than there are in many other European countries. And one of the reasons why that is is because most of the other European countries are trying to protect languages. And this is why, you know, there is that dynamic of subsidy in other countries, and there's nothing wrong with it at all. You know, language culture is a real culture. And the swamping of language cultures in Europe is an issue for every European government, and they seek to protect their cultures rightly. In the UK, of course, we're part of the whole Anglo-Saxon thing, but we are the arbiters of the words. So you'll see that you know, British authors you know, basically punch way above their weight, British program makers, British advertising makers, and the scheme of, of culture that the BBC sits at the bottom of in the UK, which is advertising-free, highly excellent words, highly excellent imagery, highly excellent thinking, you know, this, this is something that sits at the base of the ecosystem, and, and, and there are always going to be challenges to that position, and, and that's actually perfectly sensible, too. So what I'm going to talk to you about is the story, a little bit about the background, about how it is that we came to view the issues around the colonization of the UK by the largest media companies in the world as a pressing issue to take action on. And I say this in the teeth I have to say, of many British people thinking there wasn't a problem at all. So, now, if we have a clicker, that would be pretty good. Oh, you can be a human clicker. Okay, so that's a human clicker. 
So great. So we're going to start with a quick view of, of what kinds of media do people consume. And as I said, the UK is, is not only has very, very high per capita expenditure, uh, to give you an order of magnitude, in the UK, as a percentage of GDP, cultural products, all of these products here, are around 7% of GDP. In France, it's around 3.5%. So the French are actually spending half of the same level in terms of GDP. So it shows how important these activities are. And of course, media consumption in the UK has topped eight hours a day on average. Many of these media are consumed simultaneously. But you will note that actually, extraordinarily, the share of monthly time spent on television has actually trended right back up to 50%, which is something that is very, very long entrenched. Radio, I mean, the UK has an extraordinary rich radio uh, world, primarily because it is the major country for spoken words. So this is Radio 4 and so on. So you see, uh, this is another way that the UK has of perpetuating the use of of, of words and thought that are clearly expressed, something which in many other cultures is really not as important as preserving the language. So, and then you go down to the internet, which is 12.9% of total consumption, but actually already comprises 30% of all advertising revenue. So in the UK, you already have quite a, this is the market where there's the highest level of, of internet advertising as a share of the whole. And as you can see, one of the reasons, it doesn't really follow media consumption, but that's also because you know, the internet is, is the locus of the chase for your demographics. And, and of course, this is completely insane because your demographics are not particularly attractive. You're not really in the market for a home or for a car or anything. But because the uh, media planners in the UK and in the US and everywhere else are at, have an average age of 27, they will always push more money into the internet. And as a result, of course, the press, is, which, is, which is, uh, comprises around 3.4% of total media consumption, that has actually suffered from vertiginous falls in support of advertising and obviously of circulation. But the 3.4% of time spent on the press is actually, it, it actually doesn't really show the real power, the, the, the real power of the press because in effect uh, the, uh, the the people who read the press are the people who are disproportionately likely to vote. And uh, in fact, the press is now read in majority. All printed products in this country are now read in majority by females. So this has been a very interesting change because if you, if you actually think that all of the cultural products, you know, magazines, books, and, and newspapers rest upon the female demographic aged over 40, it's quite a startling thought that women have that much power and they certainly don't exercise it. Um, anyway, what this shows is that uh, the technology development of the UK has been very, very rapid and this is, these are the trends which are directly affecting uh, the media consumption around the press um, and, and, and obviously around magazines. I mean, magazines will also suffer from around a 10% fall in circulation this year. And we do see in the UK, unlike other countries in Europe, you do see older demographics adopting technology extraordinarily fast. So there is no digital divide, except if you put that digital divide at, say, 70-year-old females with an average income of 10,000 pounds, which are not going to be adopters. So of technology, but, but overall, the overall population is moving very, very quickly towards mobile uh, uh, devices. And there are important changes in consumption that will follow. So to, to illustrate my point about advertising, 
you can see that the green line, which is the internet line, is, is the only area that has been really growing very, very strongly. And then we have seen a reversal of the downward trend seen in 2009, which people, you know, I can tell you whenever there's a downward trend in television, people say it's the death of this and the death of that. I mean, people very quickly think that we're in an Armageddon scenario. Um, but anyway, in 2009, you had a 15% drop in the TV market that was directly related to the economic crisis. Uh, and it has, as you can see, recovered. But the main line to look at is the green line spurring on, and everything else, including the cinema and so on, is really flat to, to, to struggling. And that, that is really the shape of the future. Now, I think we move on to the next slide to see what that is. So we're now going to get on to, to, to uh, Murdoch. Okay. So I have followed this story for a very long time. And I've always been confused because, to my mind, Rupert Murdoch is someone who's not British. Um, he doesn't have a British passport. He's never had a British passport. Uh, News Corp itself does not pay tax in the UK any more than Google, Amazon, and eBay, who don't, not only don't pay Facebook, not only don't even pay tax in the UK, actually they don't pay tax in Europe as a whole. However, all of these businesses, including News Corp, do sustain the whole European Union because they have $2 trillion in European banks. And I'm sure you follow the Eurozone crisis and you would be much aware that $2 trillion US dollars sitting in the European financial system is going to keep things on the go for a bit longer. So we don't want them to repatriate their funds. It would be nice if they paid some in tax. But anyway, so News Corp is one of these global organizations which has effectively, intensively colonized the UK. And it has done so if you, across a number of different sectors. So um, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that uh, uh, News Corp has uh, The Sun, The Sun on Sunday, The Times, and also uh, is uh, the 39% uh, owner of B Sky B, the company that Damien was referring to, which was the subject of this very hard-fought battle in which the good guys won, uh, <laughs> including me. And uh, cinema, books, HarperCollins, and you, I'm sure you spotted that Rupert Murdoch was trying to get in the way of the Penguin-Bertelsmann tie-up around publishing. This is absolutely classic. You know, he would wade in and offer $300 million more and see if the Penguin people would bite at that. But of course, they all know that it might not come to that. But above all, many, many people in the media sector would prefer not to be owned by a News Corp business. And I think that will continue to be the case for some time to come. But it's, this is an, an individual actor. And the way that Rupert Murdoch controls this business and what he's really up to, the level of intimidation of politicians, of individuals, of journalists, and so on. This has been something I myself emigrated to this country in 1981 and became solely British. I gave up being American uh, about five years ago. And as an entirely British person, there is this concept that you must understand about sharing a destiny with a country, right? Sharing a destiny. Sharing good, bad, and indifferent. Sharing... Uh, you know, the building of schools, sharing the care of the elderly, sharing the crazy adventures abroad, sharing whatever it is that a country shares. But if you do not share that, but you advocate outcomes, well, certainly you're going to have me as an enemy. And this is something that News Corp has systematically done. News Corp has spent 40 years 
arguing vociferously against the very existence of the BBC, right? And this is a completely self-interested thing, cloaked in ideology around free market bullshit, right? There is no way that it is a better thing for two-year-olds and four-year-olds and 70-year-olds to have you know, programs that are cluttered with advertising, cluttered with an ambition to sell stuff. That's not the cultural locus of the UK. The, the absence of understanding of this British culture and this allergic reaction that Rupert Murdoch has had towards Britain, this love-hate relationship that Rupert Murdoch has towards this nation, which is manifested in all kinds of ways, is actually part of his personality. And he also has a love-hate relationship with his children, whom he also tortures. So he's been torturing us for 40 years, and he tortures his kids. Anyway, um, this complex, passive-aggressive individual who has it in for the BBC, uh, and, and also briefly had it in for me, although you can see I'm fine. Um, this... <laughs> This individual uh, is, is, is seemingly indestructible, even at the age of 81. And we have no, we have no qualms about saying that if, if News Corp could buy B Sky B in due course, it would do so. But I think Damien and I will agree that the chances of that happening now are very sm small, and that if we get our way, legislation will exist to preclude this outcome. Had this company bought B Sky B, it would have had a complex share of the market. It would not only be, it's already the biggest media organization in the UK, and it would have leapfrogged forward into controlling close to 40% of all TV income, as well as having, as you can see from News International share, the leading share in print-related revenue and the, and the leading share in circulation with DMGT. DMGT, as I'm sure you know, has slightly higher pricing, so it's only that. But in, fa in effect... Mail. Yeah, this is the mail. So, so you, you can see that, that, that essentially we, we have a, an almost a duo, duopolistic system here because actually all of the other publications, apart from the Telegraph, which rests on the bedrock of existence for a wonderful newspaper, which is a subscription level. So the New York Times is 80% of its circulation on subscription. That's also the case for the Telegraph, so it's actually quite a strong publication. But that is the only publication that is actually making substantial sums. Uh, left. So we are looking at an overall environment in which the income flows to all media enterprises are very, very challenged. But the ones that are going to last the longest are the ones with the most scale and scope and the ones that are backed by, first of all, someone who has political power at the center of his agenda, like Rupert Murdoch, although he's not the only one. I mean, I can tell you, the Barclay Brothers of the Telegraph, Richard Desmond, who is a madman, um, and, and the people at the mail, I mean, everyone, and even Yevgeny Lebedev, these are all people pushing a political agenda and, and, and using the media to do that, which is why it is, you know, I'm never so sure that even if these organizations have extraordinarily poor economics, I'm never that sure they're really going to be snuffed out, because as long as someone will buy a publication, there will be a proprietor who wants to speak to the public and have influence. And, of course, that's all, particularly the case for, for News Corp., because, uh, in effect, I think we had it somewhere here. We might have cut it. No, it's towards the end. Anyway, but moving on to this, this slide, well, essentially what you have is, is you have an organization 
And I'm not saying this because I'm a pacifist, although that is the main reason I gave up my American citizenship. But you do have very powerful ideological agendas that are played out, and they're played out over decades, and they do distort the political dialogue. And especially when that political dialogue is distorted by someone who does not co-adventure, it is something for all people in that country to be particularly afraid of, that there is a privileged dialogue between a media proprietor and politicians that decides things that, that neither the politician nor the media proprietor actually co-adventures with. For instance, if, for the sake of argument, News Corp had been successful in, in chopping away at the BBC, as it has tried to do so long, who would suffer? If Radio 4 is cut back and its original material is cut back and its format changes, do you think Rupert Murdoch is going to suffer? Is he hanging on for Radio 4? No. He doesn't consume any media here. In fact, to the degree that his son James Murdoch was able to claim, hand on heart, that he had not read the New York Times article that covered the allegations on phone hacking when that article came forward in September 2010. He had not read it. Many media proprietors do not appear to stretch themselves to actually consuming anything. So they, they act and they have views and they express them, but they actually are not taking full responsibility for the effect on people's lives. And given that, what I showed you earlier is a massive media consumption environment. We're the most mediatized nation uh, in the world, and therefore the effects that these actions could have on people's life experience, on their ability to know, to intuit, to understand, to actually develop a position from which to vote. You know, all of this is mediated by the media. If you, if you have distorted outcomes all the time, people's sense of personal freedom suffers, and they don't even know it's gone. You know, all you have to do is look around Europe at these countries like France, where you know, newspapers are circulating, quality newspapers are circulating less than a million copies a day, and you're actually looking at a very uninformed and phlegmatic uh, population, which is no longer you know, trying to grasp knowledge, trying to speak truth to power, trying to find a way forward, and you actually have a political class with immediate support, particularly in France, because all the quality newspapers are supported by the French state. So there's a cabal there, and that is actually something that is not transparent to the public, and it is not something that the public has bought into. So I urge you all to pay for media, because that's the only way to keep the good ones going. But anyway, this, uh, this chart gives you a sense of, of the existing UK media market revenues of News Corp, which is already 20%. And as we say in here, uh, without going into any great detail about media legislation in different countries, this isn't, wouldn't be allowed. I mean, in effect, it's very hard to compare countries. We did an enormous amount of work on comparing countries, but it's very hard to do. The reason why it's very hard to do is because very few countries are the same size. And also, many countries have these specific language issues. So you find that in Norway, there's an enormous attempt to protect Norwegian, rightly. NHK in Japan is the most powerfully funded public service broadcaster in the world. Why? Because only the Japanese are going to watch Japanese language programs. You can't export them. So, you know, there are, and in the U.S., you have much more fluid media ownership legislation, which operates more at a local level, and that's because there are 50 markets, I mean, 50 cities 
in the U.S. that are the size of London. So ergo, you didn't need a different shape. And also, America is so big with 310 million people that it is very unlikely that any organization would be able to get this kind of grip. So the largest media organization in America comprises less than 10% of the market's revenues, just, just to give you an order of magnitude. So this is a very, very different shape of country and one in which you know, these are the next two players, the BBC and ITV, and as you can see, they're rather far behind. Now in terms of, in terms of news consumption, this is a very interesting issue and this is how the, the, the dialogue went with the regulator. And I have no problems with our regulator, Ofcom. We're, we're doing different things. What the regulator did in the case of the B-Sky-B transaction was to measure news consumption because that was the technical support for its intervention. So this was its interpretation and an interpretation that had taken about eight years to emerge from the 2003 comms legislation, that this was where... That was, this was the locus of plurality. Now, if you give a regulator something to count, they will count it. If you actually try to push a bigger concept or a different concept on a regulator, they will resist. My concept was a practical one as a business person, which was simply that we know how News Corp, that, that, that the, although European legislation and therefore ergo competition legislation in the UK has actually divided newspapers into one world and TV into complete other, what we know is, is that, A, in a convergent world, access to video, access to imagery, access to words is actually very, very convergent. And therefore, the differentiation between these products becomes more diffuse. And not to say that there is no distinction. There are. I mean, you know, it is clear as a bell that, you know, BBC One with, you know, 22% of the audience is the leading TV channel and is not exactly equivalent to uh, you know, ownership of a major newspaper circulating three or four million uh, uh, copies a day as the Sun does, although you know, it's basically bought by 2.3 million and, and the readership is four or, five, four or five million. So these are not equivalent things. But nonetheless, you know, it gives you an idea of the importance of these, of these key voices. And, and this is a, even more of a paradox because the argument put forward by News Corp, which I, I, I'm sure you would all agree with, uh, I'm hoping you don't agree with the depth of it, but you'd probably agree with the surface of it. News Corp actually said, if you're actually counting voices and counting minutes of consumption, what you should really do is look at the plethora of options that there are on the internet and say there's actually a m millions of voices in the blogosphere, millions of minutes of consumption which are not accounted for by News Corp, BBC, or ITV, and this is the real plurality. So we don't have a problem with plurality because, after all, we might have this share of revenue, but actually, in terms of share of news exposure, we're so much below the BBC. So. This is one of the key problems that the BBC faces at this moment. You have an organization which is accounting for almost 50% of the news consumption. And actually, in some levels, it's much more. For instance, in terms of TV news, news being the major way that people get news in this country as in every other, the BBC actually accounts for 71% of weekly consumption of news. So it's a remarkably strong position. It is akin to the NHK. It is not akin to that of any other country. I mean, obviously, in Germany, you have regional broadcasters, so the situation is different. And probably, if you accumulate the regional broadcasters, you get to a figure like the BBC's. But anyway, so it's an incredible force. And as a result, the issues around public trust, which have come up you know, in the last months, 
Uh, these, are, these are ones that weigh particularly heavy on an organization which so many people do trust. You know, I mean, nobody reads News Corp's publication and says we trust them. You know, they know they're going to get an opinion. In fact, many, many people who read newspapers don't want news. They want opinions. They want to read Boris Johnson and his views here, and they want to read that person there, and that's what they're really doing. So people are not particularly confused, and certainly, but in the end, our argument was that what politicians really pay attention to is what really matters, and what politicians pay attention to is economic power. They really do. And so an organization that is already the biggest media organization in the world, which then becomes hugely more significant in the UK, and actually accounts for, say, with a transaction, around 30% of total media income, that organization is going to be one that is even more courted by politicians. So our view of plurality was that we, the public, the public space, have access to many options, but the public doesn't have the transparency to understand the links between the proprietors and the media enterprises and the politicians and all of the nexus of intimidation and coziness that can evolve. So these things are opaque to the public, but they're very real. And as someone who is an immigrant here, the only people I really worry about, because they know so little, are the politicians. You know, they're, they seem to me terribly naive. And of course, they're always so full of themselves when they've been actually voted into power that they're very, very dangerous. I mean, the system here is one in which, you know, these, these MPs, one, I remember Jeremy Hunt uh, spoke at, at a conference that we do every year, and he was the last speaker when he was in opposition in January, just before the election in May, and there were only six people in the audience because he was like a nobody. You know, he's not a minister, he was an MP. But I can tell you, six months later, he was besieged, and as we now know, I don't know if any of you have, have looked at the Fred Mich Michelle emails, anybody looked at those? Oh, it's a gas. Oh, well, Damien will help you. This is a real dream ticket. If you look at those emails and you see the nexus of intimidation, bombardment, poor Jeremy Hunt, he was actually the rabbit in the headlights of the world's biggest organization, and they weren't going to give him a moment off. In fact, they were bedeviling him when he was having his first child, and uh, in fact, uh, the, um, Fred Michel even managed to have his own first kid, in the same hospital at the same time to create an even deeper bond. I mean, I tell you, no stone left unturned, huh? So anyway, so you can see the effect in those emails. And of course, Jeremy Hunt himself uh, got off the hook precisely because people understood the moral hazard couldn't just be one side. I mean, the thought had always been, well, if politicians, you know, fall over and are corrupted by these various forces, well, they're not particularly good politicians, and that's their own damn fault. I take a different view. My view is, is that people who are you know, on their own like that need to be protected, they need to be given understanding, and they need to have the idea that you can actually alter the course of these enterprises without damage to the public trust, to the, public, to the public's access to services that they cherish. Uh, you know, there is a sense that politicians have a bit of a back-of-the-envelope mentality, mainly because very few of them consume any media. So why does media plurality matter? Um, well, what, what media says matters less than whether or not they're going to cover something. And one of the great untold stories, which I'm afraid I'm not going to get around to because I'm too busy dealing with reality, but... One of the great untold stories is, in fact, News Corp's coverage of the problems uh, around pedophilia 
in, um, in the Catholic Church. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons why, why News Corp has always failed to give adequate coverage to the issues of pedophilia in the Catholic Church is because like Jimmy Savile, uh, Rupert Murdoch and Conrad Black, Lord Black of Cross Arbor, such good company, these are all papal knights. You wouldn't believe it. I know. They're all papal knights. They're all special people for the Pope. So anyway, so not covering an issue perpetuates it. And one of the reasons why the Catholic Church was able to drag its feet for 40 years was because its victim stories were not validated by the press and they were covered up. And that is something that is so terrible for those victims and it's so terrible for those institutions. But it's, it's fundamentally wrong. I think we all feel that victims of sexual abuse, uh, especially as, as uh, in the case of the Catholic Church, spanning many countries, uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of victims, that this is a major issue. So uh, I think I can give a pitch for, for my pacifist views. Um, if, we, if we get the next slide. Um, thank you. So... Sure. Um, so, well, I'm almost finished. Yeah. I have all the time that you guys want. Um, but anyway, this, this is my particular bête noire because, of course, when you look back at the Iraq war, and, and indeed the issues around the BBC also came up then with something called the Hutton Inquiry, and there too, you know, the BBC was actually aggressed by Tony Blair and, and, and Alistair Campbell, his sidekick. Um, and essentially, the the situation was that uh, Rupert Murdoch was a, a paid-up cheerleader for, for the Iraq War and its interventions. And it is also true that no, um, no Murdoch paper has, has, has ever not supported military action, both by the American or British governments. Uh, this is something that has a tendency to sway politicians greatly. So anyway, the, on the next slide... I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of the kind of access uh, that, um, that the Murdochs had. And I'm only saying this because although I was a leading activist uh, against the B-Sky-B transaction, uh, I was unable to get any meetings with any cabinet ministers at all. And I was only able to get my views across to Vince Cable because I rugby tackled him at City Airport. He was adrift. There he was. I thought I'm going to give him my pitch. Anyway, he 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 said to he claimed to the Leveson Inquiry that this was when the scales dropped from his eyes. He understood how important this transaction was. But you know, if an actor, if an activist, if someone has to you know hang around City Airport waiting for a cabinet minister to drop by, that's not democracy. You know, this kind of access is a, is is actually an injustice. So finally, what we want, okay. We want plurality because it maintains our cultural vitality and because we can ensure that all citizens, consumers, receive a very vast range of content and because also the UK has an extraordinary um, uh, uh, set of cultural industries which employ young people. So therefore the opportunities, plurality also breeds employment opportunities for the young and above all it basically breeds the kind of genius that you could see in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics and the Paralympics, 
which is this extraordinary bespokeness, this extraordinary humanity. And there is, as someone who is British and who became British by choice, I tell you, this is a, a peach of a nation. And, and to traduce these Anglo-Saxon virtues of love, of, of, of discourse, of words, of clarity, of humanity, of intelligence, you know, this nation is the birthplace of so many of the greatest ideas. And the idea that this nation would have been colonized by this ghastly, uh, papist, uh, you know, a warmongering organization is just too much for, for me to bear. And I hope that you will one day take up your own actions to preserve your environments just as much as I did. Thank you, Claire. We have um, until six o'clock for questions. But you can always email me. Um, <laughs> um, do raise your hand if you have um, a question. I'm, I'm going to adopt the role of the, the impartial BBC um, journalist um, and say, you know, Claire, haven't you, haven't you just illustrated for us that your, um, your research, in a way, is, is not really independent or skewed. You are on a personal vendetta against Rupert Murdoch. I'm a guardian angel of the UK, and you can always term it that way. I, no, I mean, I, I think that, actually, what I think I've shown is, is that you can use your expertise, and I use all of my expertise because, in effect, we have very, very powerful counterforces. You know, every argument I have put forward has been pawed over by McKinsey and lawyers. So, actually, I'm a lone little voice, but actually, because I encapsulate the data and no one else has quite the control of the data that I do, actually, I was able to convince people precisely because they didn't understand what kind of share News Corp already had. They didn't understand media plurality legislation in other countries, and they didn't understand what the effect of this transaction would have. So, you know, I, I am a paid-up member. I mean, I've already said it. I'm a pacifist. You know, I'm a paid-up member of the liberal intelligentsia. You know, that makes me part of a conspiracy, a cabal, yes, of activists. Yes, I'm proud of it. But, you know, it, it, in the end, you know, it... it it's very interesting, this issue of independence, because my company is really... I was the expert witness in the U.S. congressional proceedings that set digital copyrights, as, as indeed in the U.K., and their independence of view and expertise were very, very highly prized. I do care very, very deeply about this country. Maybe that makes me less independent, but it also means I get up in the morning and I do something different from other people. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I had to do that, you understand, for... But, uh, the impartiality of the chair. While people are um, mulling over your thoughts and uh, uh, raise, uh, about to raise their hand and ask a question, I think, um, uh, if we can come on to the solution, in a way, because you didn't go on to say what you hoped would come out of this key moment of opportunity. Um, you're saying media power is a problem. This is not a new thing. We've always had rules specific to the media sector which have the objective of controlling media power. We call them ownership rules. Mm -hmm. What do you hope comes out of Leveson? Well, this, th that, that's, that's a, 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 a different question. I mean, the, the, 
the, the Levison inquiry is about to report, and if anyone would like it, we have an extraordinarily good piece of work, which you must have gotten, the Levison thing that we sent around. You're on our distribution. Well, Damien, I'd be most grateful if you copied it. It shows the political manifestations behind the Leafson thing and basically how it is that all the political parties are positioning themselves. Going back to media plurality, like Damien, you know, who is also a paid-up member of the liberal intelligence, in case you were wondering. <laughs> Don't believe it. <laughs> no, of course not. He works for News Corp. Um, <laughs> he's their plant at LSE. Uh, anyway, so, so, so the fact is, what I have hoped for and campaigned for with, primarily with the Labour Party, because Ed Miliband was the first off the blocks when the phone hacking scandal erupted and said, never more. We're never going to have these compacts again. And he has made a personal commitment to me that he will introduce legislation that will cut off the legislative loophole that would allow News Corp to reintroduce this transaction. And my hope is that this transaction will never happen and that the law will change. The reason why I want the law changed, even though the transaction might not happen, is simply because over and over again, all the way through the last 25 years, we have seen politicians actually changing position and acquiescing to Murdoch when it suits them, when they've got something to exchange. And so this is, if you change the law, it basically neutralizes that dynamic of power and intimidation between politicians and Murdoch and whoever his successor is, you know, because obviously he has many children. So it's that. I'm, again, I'm trying to protect the politicians from an abuse of power that they themselves would be part of. I'm hopeful. I mean, we spent a lot of time. We spent time with Ofcom. Ofcom produced a review of media plurality this year, which completely disagreed with our view. So what? We'll see. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's one of those things. It's like one of those secret battles that takes years and years and years, but you can never get, you can never take your eye off the ball. All I can tell you is if you want to achieve anything in politics in this country, you must be doggedly determined, and then they just fall over because they actually understand what you have to say and you've actually persuaded them. But anyway, so I'm hopeful that if Ed Miliband, as I suspect, uh, is, is leading uh, the next government in 2015, that he will introduce measures to, to, to do this. On the Leafson front, however, even though the Labour party is very much in favor of statutory control, it has never introduced it. Uh, the Labour Party, I think from memory, statutory tried... control, you mean of a, the press, a, a, a law which obliges people to, uh, newspapers to join a self-regulatory Correct. State. Yeah, so a, a compulsory statutory body to regulate newspapers and their content. So Labour introduced this notion in 2003. And, and actually tried to convince the newspapers that this was a good way forward. Uh, they refused, and Labour backed off. So I don't think, regardless of what they say now, that Labour will back the introduction of a statutory regime for newspapers. And I myself am dead against it. You know, I don't think, even if Leifson recommends it, some kind of you know, version of statutory body, you know, and so on. I, I mean, first of all, you know, anybody will tell you that there are lots of conflicts in the newspaper industry over Richard Desmond and things like that. But it's also more fundamentally that, in a way, the statutory regulation issue is a way for the politicians to try to intimidate the press. And although the press do heinous things, they must be free to do heinous things and good things. Any comments, questions, responses to that? Don't be shy.
Um, the Press Complaints Commission is an extraordinary body which is, was formerly dominated by News International, DMGT, Daily Mail and General Trust, and the Telegraph Group. In fact, they had all the key positions sewn up, and they were responsible for suppressing the Guardian story on phone hacking. They were responsible for it. They were also responsible for setting the budget for the PCC, a budget of 1.7 million pounds, which doesn't go very far if you're pursuing complicated things like phone hacking. So the reform PCC is what the newspaper companies are prepared to offer. The government is in no doubt, nor am I, that it continues to be a venal, twisted, and corrupted body. No illusions about that. Well, there is. You know, it will have to do. They will have to go forward. They will have to... I mean, they don't have the credibility with the public, but it's faute de mieux. I mean, if all we've got is PCC Mark II, then that's what we have. And it's probably better to have a venal, corrupted organization that we really understand, where everybody's got the gist of it and understands how it works, and it's trying to work. I mean, I can assure you that since the scandal blew in, the PCC is fielding about 10 times the number of complaints that it once was. So it's much more active. And also the, the, um, the uh, committee meetings are much less distorted. It's not going to stop the mail and uh, especially Paul Dacre and the Telegraph people from having their secret cabals. But, you know, it is something which is more open to the public than it was. It's the best we can have. Other question here. Well, that's, that's, that's very hard to predict where we are today, but I have spent the last five days working on a scheme that I hope the BBC will be putting forward for the victims uh, because, you know, the, the absence of care for the victims is, is, is a very heavy charge on the organization. So, uh, you know, if you obviously you're looking at this as, as media analysts, uh, as I do, and, and you really see, you know, three different key stories. One of them is about the trajectory of the program and why it was canned. Secondly, you have the uh, evidence, such as it is, or cover-up of any evidence of Jimmy Savile's activities at the BBC. So those are the two independent inquiries. Then you have the issue of the victims, which, as I said, I'm hoping the BBC will start to address in the next 24 hours. And I've urged them to do this and even found a very, very, I think, a very good scheme to do it. Uh, but the impact on the BBC, you know, if the if BBC's the trust in the BBC has fallen below 50%. It's not that significant. We haven't seen a real boycott of the BBC. But essentially, the things that look most obvious to me in terms of next steps is either George Entwistle is going to dominate the situation this week with this scheme offered to the victims, uh, and then he will be able to go forward, or... Chris Patton, who has isolated George, is going to get rid of George, replace him with an outsider, probably Ed Richards, because after all, Chris Patton is the person responsible for promoting an insider. And then typically, Chris Patton himself will fall on his knife. Uh, on, British people like to have scalps. So you know, that's, that may be what happens. Overall, am I worried about the BBC? No, I'm not worried because the license fee is set in stone. Uh, for the next uh, six years. It goes until, uh, yeah, 2018, right? Uh, 2018. The license fee goes there. So the BBC's income is guaranteed. You know, we're not going to see some kind of fundamental implosion of the BBC. What we are seeing 
is, is a leadership crisis, a management crisis, and an institutional crisis, and, and a public trust crisis. And, and all of it is very well deserved for the BBC. So I'm, I'm really going to defend the BBC's future, but I'm not going to defend the BBC's management. I urge you to do the same. <laughs> No, no, it's a very interesting one. I was talking about it this morning. Yeah. Okay. Um, the the question, question was whether Claire would comment on uh, retransmission fees, mm -hmm. which is a proposal to get more uh, into the public service broadcasting finance system by changing uh, the way that um, people that operate network, networks pay for carriage of public service broadcasting channels. Currently, they don't pay. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the relevance of this question is profound because in the U.S. two years ago, um, there was finally an agreement for the broadcasters to be paid by cable operators and satellite companies and other platform operators. And, 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 and this is something that is a real political issue in the U.K., it's one of those real political issues that is an ever-present pawn. And I, I have to say I take some responsibility for raising it with the BBC and with ITV. Um, my view is, is that the chances of retrans fees in the UK will be immeasurably higher if there is a Labour government uh, because one of the interesting aspects of the ecology is, is the division of income. So you've got... Um, television advertising income, which is growing at, say, 2% in, on a long-term basis, and pay TV revenues generated by Virgin Media, by Sky, by BT Vision, which are growing at around 5%. So you have a, a, a pay TV keeps growing, and therefore, because the public service broadcasters, particularly the BBC, ITV, and Channel 4, generate the the vast, I mean, that's not the vast majority, but it's certainly the lion's share of viewing on these platforms, there is an argument of natural justice. Um, now, that argument is going to be laid against other things. For instance, as I'm sure you know, there is a very complex legal instrument that governs the positioning of channels on the EPG, the Electronic Prog Program Guide, and the public service broadcasters have a right to one, two, three, four, five, right? So those are the top positions, and you can well imagine people don't get beyond that first page. When it's come down to it, when ITV actually pushed its luck and said, we'd rather have the retrans fees than the EPG control that allows us to have position three, when they, we actually thought about it for them, and we told them that they were crazy, that I'd much rather be number three, guaranteed position in the electronic program guide until the cows come home, than get an extra five million from Sky. So, you know, the value of these things is very, very fluid. I do think it is a way that the Labour government may, if a Labour government comes in, may address the disparity in the income generation potential of advertising and pay. And I, I do think it will, if it does come about, which, which it will be there, it will be there forever. It is going to be an interesting issue all the way through the future because it is really what the public service broadcasters have to offer as a quid pro quo. Okay, we're running out of time here. Does anybody want to speak up for News uh, Corporation or, or France? Um, uh, both of which you've, you've mentioned. Okay, that was your last opportunity. Thank you very much uh, for your question. Thank you, Claire.